is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. First up, we have the master of ED ortho, Aaron Seale, who's going to talk to us about scaphoid fractures. Now, we all know the basics of scaphoid fractures. But there's some nuances in assessment that he's going to outline for us, like understanding age and gender-related prevalence, the value of the three simple physical exam maneuvers, and when to order scaphoid views. Take it away, Dr. CL. For this episode of EM Ortho Quick Hits, we're going to talk about scaphoid injuries. And I'll readily admit that before working in the fracture clinic, my ED approach was oversimplified. It's a problem fracture I knew that was at risk for healing with non-union or AVN, I knew X-rays could miss up to 30% of scaphoid fractures, so I'd check the snuff box, and if they were tender, add a scaphoid X-ray. If the X-rays were negative, we diagnose a clinical scaphoid fracture, immobilize, and arrange follow-up. There are a number of assessment pearls I've learned from the orthopedic surgeons and from working in the fracture clinic the last number of years that help me on my eMERGE shifts now, and I hope they'll be helpful to you as well. So first off, it's important to understand age-related prevalence of these injuries. By the numbers, distal radius versus carpal fractures, if, if a patient has a wrist injury in eMERGE, distal radius fracture is far more common, likely 80%. Carpals are around 20%. And of all those carpal fractures, right, which represent only 20% of wrist injuries, scaphoid is about 70%. So it's not all of them are scaphoids. So on subsequent quick hits, we'll cover some of the important carpal injuries that are not scaphoid fractures. But for this episode, we'll focus on the scaphoid. And you should appreciate as well that scaphoid fractures are not equally common in all age groups. They're far less common in preteens and far less common in older adults. Why is that? Because these two groups have weaker bone and the force is most likely to cause a distal radius fracture in those ages. Scaphoid fractures are most common in the later teen, in the younger adult with a high energy force. If they fall, they have good quality bone, the distal radius doesn't give way, and the force just gets passed on down the line to the next link in the chain, that's the carpals, and that's where the force may exit. So this is why scaphoid fractures and other carpal injuries are more common in the later teen, the younger adult, and less common in preteens, less common in older adults. Scaphoid fractures are far more likely in males than females, and they're usually after a fall on the outstretched hand, but occasionally can be from direct trauma. Let's talk about the scaphoid assessment. There are three clinical tests for a scaphoid fracture that we should do in eMERGE, and most of us usually only do one, and certainly that's all I did before. We all know about snuffbox tenderness. A few caveats. Press in your snuffbox. Hand up if it's sore. Okay, this is a pre-recorded podcast, but if we were all in the same room, a lot of us would have our hand up. And while snuffbox tenderness is quite sensitive for a scaphoid fracture, it's very nonspecific. And up to 20 to 25% of people have snuffbox tenderness at baseline due to a branch of the radial nerve. So for many, snuffbox tenderness is physiology and not pathology. How will you know if it's pathologic or physiologic? 
check the opposite side. So look for asymmetric snuffbox tenderness. But if it's there bilaterally, just make sure they didn't fall on both of their hands. Because I've seen three cases of bilateral scaphoid fractures. You know, they only injured one side and both snuffboxes are equally sore. That's probably pre-existing tenderness. Also, another important point about the art of the scaphoid exam. Snuffbox tenderness needs to be done in ulnar deviation. The scaphoid rotates with wrist movement. When your wrist is ulnarly deviated, your scaphoid moves under the snuffbox. And if the wrist is radially deviated, the scaphoid slides away and hides under the radial styloid. So snuffbox tenderness needs to be done in ulnar deviation. The second test is palmar scaphoid palpation, done at the base of the thenar eminence where the scaphoid tubercle is palpable. Look for tenderness at this spot. And the third clinical test is axially loading the first metacarpal, compressing down onto the scaphoid. This test is far less valuable in the elderly. Why? Because they're more likely to have osteoarthritis of the carpometacarpal joint, and this gives you a false positive. That's called a first metacarpal grind test for CMCOA. Also, prevalence is way down in the elderly, right? As they're way less likely to have a scaphoid fracture. So if that test is positive, it's far more likely to be reflective of CMCOA and far less likely to be reflective of a scaphoid fracture. So in the elderly, not a useful third test, but the other two are. So again, the importance of surface anatomy. As we improve our clinical skills, the sensitivity of these tests will improve. Snuffbox tenderness is most valuable. Palpation of the palmar scaphoid tubercle is number two. Axiloading of the first metacarpal. But again, for younger, uh, younger patients, we do all three tests. For older patients, we hold off on axiloading. It's of less value. In those younger patients, if all three are positive, there's a 70 to 90% chance of a scaphoid fracture. If only one out of three are positive, there's a 30 to 50% chance. So with x-rays, you know, do the extra scaphoid view for sure. It's a coned-in view with the wrist and ulnar deviation. So it's an extra chance to see the fracture, plus the scaphoid is rotated in a different plane. You may see a fracture line. It also not only adds to the sensitivity of the plane films, it also helps with position. So again, then it goes back to common sense and clinical concern. Understanding the age, gender, mechanism, physical exam, and prevalence. This is what drives our pretest probability. Add imaging, and then these tips will help us better understand the injury the patient has and how best to manage it. It's very uncommon for preteens and elderly to have scaphoid fractures, but not impossible. It's very common for snuffbox tenders to be positive at baseline. So remember to examine the opposite side and remember to assess with three simple bedside tests. Snuffbox tenders with ulnar deviation, palmar scaphoid tenderness, and axiloading of the first metacarpal, particularly for that younger patient, the late teenager and the younger adult. And remember, there are also other important carpal injuries besides the scaphoid. And we'll cover those in the next installment of Ortho EM Cases Quick Hits. Thank you very much. I hope this helps you on your next shift. So clear, concise, and perfectly applicable as always. Thank you so much, Dr. CL. Next up, we have Justin Morgenstern giving us the lowdown on the recent targeted temperature management number two trial. He's going to shed some light on whether or not we should be cooling patients after cardiac arrest, so placing ice packs in the groins and armpits in the ED and getting them to the ICU to start all the other cooling measures. A landmark paper on hypothermia after cardiac arrest just dropped, so let's do a quick 
summary. The TTM2 trial, stands for Targeted Temperature Management, was brought to us by the same group as the first TTM trial. If you remember, TTM1 was a big RCT that showed no difference between cooling patients to 33 degrees versus 36 degrees. But 36 degrees is not normal temperature, so that left us with the question of whether 36 was somehow different or better than 37. And that's where TTM2 comes in. It's a big, international, multi-center RCT. They look at the patients you would expect. Patients in a coma after cardiac arrest. It didn't matter what kind of cardiac arrest, shockable, non-shockable, everybody was included. There were a few exclusion criteria to make sure that people with dismal outcomes didn't get into the trial, but for the most part, these are exactly the same patients that you would currently be cooling. They randomized these patients to a hypothermia group, which had a target temperature of 33 degrees Celsius, and they stayed there for 28 hours, and they compared that to controlled normothermia. In this group, they aimed to maintain a temperature of 37.5 degrees Celsius or less. The primary outcome was all-cause mortality at six months. They included 1,900 patients. The mean age was about 64, 80% were male, 75% had a shockable rhythm, 90% had a witnessed arrest, and 80% received bystander CPR. So if anything, I think these patients probably have a somewhat better prognosis than the average ROSC patient that I'm seeing. The results? were very easy to summarize. No difference. Primary outcome, all-cause mortality, was 50% in both groups. Neurologic outcomes were the same. They looked at a bunch of different subgroups, and there was no benefit from hypothermia in any group. The only difference was more adverse events in the hypothermia group, mostly arrhythmias. So hypothermia was actually slightly harmful, although in the end, there was no change in outcomes that we really care about, mortality or functional outcomes, so the arrhythmias are probably pretty irrelevant. Now, this isn't a perfect study, nothing is, but it does represent the best quality evidence that we have. In my mind, the biggest problem with this study is that they didn't include a true control group. They didn't include a group of patients who didn't have their temperatures controlled at all. And so this trial doesn't really tell us if fever control is important. And that's something that we hear all the time since the original TTM trial that hypothermia may not matter, but fever control is absolutely essential. However, it's worth noting that there isn't a single RCT that shows that fever control matters. There's no evidence that fever control matters. People have taken that hypothesis and transformed it into a conclusion. So what should we be doing after this new TTM2 trial? Well, I think the most important lesson in all of EBM is that a single trial is never enough on its own. Science needs replication. We need to incorporate the results of multiple studies to really understand what's going on. So to make a decision about hypothermia, we need to understand all of the evidence available. So really, this quick hit is really just an ad, a teaser, for an upcoming Journal Jam episode, where we'll make sure that everybody thoroughly understands all of the hypothermia literature. My quick take for now, before that Journal Jam, is that this is probably the end of hypothermia. There's definitely no need for 33 degrees. As for fever control, it's a fine hypothesis, but keep in mind there really is no data at all supporting it. There's definitely no data in cardiac arrest. Fever control has actually been studied in many other ICU scenarios, and it has never provided value. So it's pretty unlikely that it's going to help in cardiac arrest. But we can go through all that data together in a Journal Jam episode so you can draw your own conclusions. 
a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Since 2015, I've been using Metricade, the incredible self-scheduling system that has made my life and the lives of my colleagues so much easier. Metricade can really help minimize the drawbacks of shift work we all know so well by not only ensuring equitable distribution of shifts, but also integrating circadian rhythm-friendly recovery time into their algorithms. They minimize my sleep deprivation, which allows me to be a better EM doc on shift. I can take better care of my patients and still have energy left after my shifts to enjoy other aspects of my life. Check out metricade.com slash emcases for more details on how this awesome scheduling system works. All right, moving on to our third quick hit. The COVID pandemic has unfortunately brought along a whole slew of related casualties, and one group of casualties are kids. Now, of course, kids who get COVID usually don't get very sick, but the incidence of depression, suicide, and functional impairment in children has skyrocketed during COVID. And sometimes kids and teenagers aren't especially forthcoming with their mental problems. So Sarah Reed was kind enough to share with us a great ED-specific pediatric mental health screening tool called Heads ED. Over the last few years, and especially over the course of the pandemic, we've seen an alarming increase in children and youth presenting to the ED with mental health concerns. And these are often really challenging cases for us to deal with. It can be really hard to know where to start and how to approach these young patients. What we really need to do is perform a great psychosocial risk assessment in order to decide on an appropriate disposition for the patient. So do they need to be connected with community resources? Do they need an emergent crisis or psychiatric evaluation? Do they actually need to be admitted either voluntarily or involuntarily? So there are a few published tools out there to help in the assessment of PEDS patients presenting to the ED with a mental health concern. And I wanted to introduce you to the one that we use in Ontario and the one I use in my practice every day. A few years ago, I was a co-author on a study looking at the application of this tool in a pediatric ED setting. And since then, it's been embedded into the provincial mental health pathway in Ontario, this pathway that aims to ensure kids get a fulsome assessment and then are connected with the resources and support that they need. In 2017, the tool was recommended by an independent investigator in a systematic review of tools to identify mental health and substance use problems in the ED. So the tool is called the HEADS-ED, so H-E-A-D-S slash ED. And it's validated for children and youth between 6 and 25 years of age. It's a quick, standardized screening tool. It has good inter-rater reliability between different providers. It has a very good correlation with the children's depression inventory. And it's easy to remember and apply at the bedside. What it does, it really provides you with a framework of how to talk to a young person who comes in with a mental health concern. And it really helps you to to identify the areas of concern, which helps you formulate your disposition plan. The headsed.com website in the show notes has a list of publications that provide some further information about the tool. So the letters that make up the words HEADS-ED are a mnemonic for organizing your assessment. And it is similar to the HEADS mnemonic that you might remember from when you did your PEDS training. So even the order in which the score is laid out is helpful because you start with questions about home and education. So that's H and E before you move into more potentially challenging territory like drug use and suicidality. So each of the seven items is scored on a scale of zero, one or two. So zero means no action is required. One means this needs action, but not immediately. And two is this is a big issue and needs immediate action. 
So the maximum score is 14. Okay, so let's go through the score. The seven items are H is for home. So you ask questions like, so where do you live? Who do you live with? How does your family get along with each other? Do you feel safe at home? The E stands for education and employment. So where do you go to school? What grade are you in? How's school going? How's your attendance? How are your grades? A is for activities and peers. So what do you like to do? How are things going with friends? Do you have any special relationship and how's that going? D is for drugs and alcohol. So do you use alcohol or drugs? If so, how much, what, how often? S is for suicidality. So asking questions like, do you have thoughts of wanting to kill yourself? Do you have a plan? And if they are suicidal, I often find a good question to ask is to talk to them about the fact that when people are suicidal, there are some people that really want to be dead. And there are another group of people that really just want things to be different or want things to change. And then I ask them which one or which group they fall into. And that can often be a really helpful distinction when you're talking to somebody who's suicidal. The E of the score stands for emotions, behaviors, and thought disturbance. So how have you been feeling lately? How would you describe your mood? On a scale of zero to 10, what number would you give your mood if zero is the worst and 10 is the best? So what's your number today? And what's your number usually? D is for discharge or current resources. So are you seeing anybody right now? Who's been helping you in the past? Are you interested in getting some help or having some counseling? So the HeadZD tool is available online. And at that website, the HeadZD.com website, they do walk you through how to score with prompts of what would constitute a zero, one, or two for each of the items. It's not surprising that the higher the score, the greater the need for immediate action. The tool is really meant to be used as a guide, though, and should not replace your clinical judgment. But the authors do suggest that if the patient's score is eight or above, and or they have a score of two on suicidality, so that means they have a plan or gesture, it's recommended that the patient does have an assessment with a crisis worker or psychiatry, depending on what's available in your ED. So I would encourage you to think about printing up this tool if you aren't using anything right now when you're seeing patients with mental health concerns in the eMERGE and see if it works for you. And I hope you find it useful. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Reed. So that's a bit about how we can help improve the lives of kids with mental health issues. We're going to switch gears now with Andrew Petrosoniak, who's going to give us some practical tips on pelvic binders and managing pelvic trauma in the ED. Let's talk about that patient who rolls in and EMS tells you there's concern for pelvic fracture. They've had an MVC and let's assume they've either had transient hypotension or maybe ongoing hypotension. First off, transient or ongoing hypotension and pelvic fractures should trigger a tremendous concern. These can be among the sickest patients I've cared for and though sometimes they come in totally fine before you know it, they're peri-arrest. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for the potential for hemodynamic instability these patients may experience. Let's go through my five tips for these patients, specific to the binder and their management. Tip one, if possible, put the binder or sheet down before they get transferred. I get it. Sometimes they are moved over before it's possible, but if you can, try. Tip number two, think of the pelvis as part of your circulation evaluation, given its potential impact on hemodynamics. 
If you establish there's hemodynamic instability from or could be from pelvic trauma, then go ahead and bind it. Also, it may not solve the bleeding as there's still plenty of room for the bleeding to occur, but it will mitigate ongoing movement and there might be some uh, potential uh, to reduce further bleeding. There's not really much else you can do. Tip number three, I guess call it what it is. My colleague Chris Hicks uses a term trochanteric binder instead of a pelvic binder. Why? Because it more correctly describes that the binder binds the trochanters rather than the pelvis or the iliac crests. I can't tell you how frequently I see these applied up around the waist. So make sure the binder's midpoint is centered on the greater trochs. And it doesn't matter if you're using a sheet or a commercially available one. Tip number four, don't log roll these patients. I mean, don't turn them 90 degrees onto their side. Why? Well, there's simply no need and you risk disrupting any clot formation by causing further pelvic instability. At most, tilt them 10 or 20 degrees and run your hands down their spine. Have a quick look for bleeding, but don't, don't tilt them. Also, don't rock the pelvis. It's a single exam and that's it. Tip number five, here's a heuristic for you. If you detect pelvic instability or you see signs of pelvic trauma on x-ray, that is some fractures or a widened pubic symphysis, disrupted SI joint, then make sure you do two things, a rectal and vaginal exam as appropriate, and a Foley catheter. The rectal and vaginal exam establish if there's an open fracture, while the Foley helps determine if you have a bladder injury. And if you see gross hematuria, then the patient is going to need a CT cysto. Oh, oh yeah, one more thing. If you haven't already, bind them pre-intubation. Few human factors reasons for this. One, might help reduce some bleeding. Two, it conveys to the team pretty clearly that there's a concern for pelvic hemorrhage. And three, it's often more comfortable for the patient. So let's go through this. Patient's brought in. You get a quick heads up that there's pelvic trauma. So I'll put down the binder ahead of time. Once they arrive, I do an immediate exam as the team lead, a single movement, inward directed force with my hands on the ASIS. If there's movement, my hands don't move, and I'll have a team member assist with applying the pelvic binder, sliding it under the small of the back and down to the greater, greater trochanters. If there's no movement, then I might just leave it, though if there's ongoing hypotension, I'll often err on the side of binding, making the decision easy. When I'm binding the pelvis, I'm finding the greater trochanters and ensuring the middle of the binder lies over the GTs. Iliac crests aren't involved in the landmarking. Once it's bound, at some point I'll run my hand down the patient's spine, but I won't turn them more than a few degrees. The timing of the x-ray can be variable, though if the patient is really unstable, I'll bind first and x-ray later. As we mentioned, they're going to get a Foley, which admittedly can be tough once a binder's in place. If they've remained stable, and the x-ray shows more of a lateral compression mechanism, then I'll loosen the binder, but otherwise it needs to be inserted with the binder left in place. And finally, rectal and vaginal exams can be conducted with the binder in situ, and often when the Foley is being in place. Digital exams are typically adequate. Sometimes the binder needs to be shifted a bit temporarily, no problems, but if there's pelvic instability, I'll do my best to keep the binder in position. And that's it. That's my take on pelvic binders and management of pelvic trauma, this is pretty much an evidence-free zone, so this represents more of my experience and conversations with colleagues as some key best practices. Fantastic. So just reviewing the five tips there, 
One is put the binder or sheet on the trauma-based stretcher before the patient arrives, if you can. Next, think of pelvic fracture early on with your circulation assessment and have a low threshold to bind it. Next, as Kylie Booth said on our first and last 15 minutes of trauma main episode, the location of the binder should be like a 70s low gene rider at the trochanters, low down. And rather than a full log roll, if you need to palpate the vertebra, tilt the patient just enough to get your hand under the middle of their back. And in those suspected of an unstable pelvic fracture, don't forget the rectal and vag exam followed by a bladder catheter. All right, next up, we've got Michelle Clayman, our EM addictions expert, who's going to talk about a drug that sounds more like a distant planet in Star Trek or something called Kratom. Actually, it's pronounced Kratom, but I do like pronouncing it Kratom. What in the world is Kratom? And why have I heard about three patients in the last month requesting help for their Kratom use? The most recent patient was 35 years old. He had a history of opiate use disorder, prescribed buprenorphine or suboxone, and stopped taking it due to high medical costs. He subsequently discovered Kratom, which he said was available in any gas station. He has tried to cut back, but experiences withdrawal within 12 to 24 hours of his last use. His symptoms are goosebumps, chills, diarrhea, pain, lacrimation, rhinorrhea, and severe anxiety. He is now having cravings for opiates and does not want to relapse to an understandably very toxic fentanyl supply. Kratom acts like an opiate, so the treatment is fairly straightforward. The patient can easily be started on buprenorphine and naloxone in the exact same way you would prescribe it for any dependency on a short-acting opiate. You can use a traditional buprenorphine induction, up to 16 milligrams on day one, or you can use a microdosing protocol with small doses increased daily if there's any risk of precipitated withdrawal. If the patient does not consent to buprenorphine, clonidine and gabapentin may be helpful. The pharmacology and history behind this mysterious drug is very interesting. Kratom is a leaves of a tropical evergreen tree of the coffee plant family called Mitragyna speciosa, or Mitragyna speciosa, that grows in Southeast Asia. It has an opioid-like effect, acting as an analgesic and sedative at high doses of 5 to 15 grams. It also has a stimulant-like effect when taken at lower doses, about 1 to 5 grams. The predominant active ingredients are metragenine and 7-hydroxymetragenine, both of which are mu-opioid receptor partial agonists, similar to buprenorphine. Metragenine also binds to the kappa receptor and acts as a kappa antagonist, leading to euphoria. In fact, 7-hydroxymetragenine is quite potent and displays cross-tolerance to morphine. Kratom leaves have been used since at least the 19th century as an herbal medicine. Its documented use is in Southeast Asia and is used mostly by laborers to help with stimulation and relaxation depending on the dose and the desired effect, usually after a long day working in the fields. Leaves can be chewed, crushed, or used to brew tea. More recently, it has made its way into the international market and is sold in gas stations and head shops in various countries as a powder or a capsule. It is marketed as a natural energy supplement. People take it for various reasons, including management of traditional opiate withdrawal, but physical and psychological dependency can develop quickly. 
I recently read a case report of a 26-year-old female who took half a 10-milligram capsule in the morning for energy and stamina, and then two to three capsules at night to help with relaxation and sleep. She is doing this for two years. She presented to the emergency department with a cow's score of 16 after her supply was abruptly cut off after losing her job at the head shop where she obtained Kratom. In Canada, where I work, Kratom is not readily available and it is not allowed to be marketed for consumption purposes. Companies have adapted to market it as an incense. It is easily obtained through the internet. I looked it up and 100 capsules cost a mere $49.95 US dollars plus shipping. Interestingly, in Indonesia, there is a scheduled ban that is expected to take place in 2022 to make Kratom an illegal substance. This will be problematic for the U.S. market as Indonesia is the primary supplier of Kratom to the U.S. The FDA states Kratom has no medical use. As the half-life of Kratom is relatively short, most people will take a dose every 6 to 12 hours, with withdrawal emerging after 12 hours based on case reports in the literature. Onset of action is rapid at 5 to 10 minutes. Withdrawal typically lasts about four days. In overdose presentations, which have been documented, naloxone is effective and will displace the active ingredients from the mu opiate receptor. Getting back to the case of 35-year-old males running low on his kratom supply. He was started on a microdose induction of buprenorphine in the emergency department, given a seven-day blister pack with escalating doses, and followed up in the addiction outpatient clinic. He successfully weaned off Kratom and has been abstinent for two weeks. If you haven't seen anyone present with Kratom use, intoxication, or withdrawal, I suspect there might be an uptick as people are doing their best to avoid the increasingly toxic street fentanyl supply, but this has yet to be proven. Hope this information helps. Well, there you have it. Kratom is yet another drug we need to be on the lookout for in our ED patients who present with agitation or altered mental status. All right. Last but not least, we've got Swami, who's going to tell us why femoral lines are awesome. So there was a time about 15 years ago when femoral lines were poo-pooed because it was thought that they carried a higher risk of infection compared to necklines. But times have changed, so let's hear what Swami has to say about femoral lines. But just before we do that, a reminder that tickets for the EM Cases Summit will go on sale August 19th at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Actually, all the amazing speakers that you're hearing on this podcast, Yael, Borgenstern, Reed, Petrosoniak, Clayman, and now Swami, they'll all be speaking at the summit. And it's a chance for you to virtually connect with these great folks. We'll be offering deep discounts for residents, PAs, paramedics, and RNs, and even deeper discounts for medical students. And if you work in a resource-limited country, we're offering 100 of you a free ticket. The details will be on our dedicated website, emcasesummit.com. All right, now for Swami on femoral lines. I want to take a little bit of time to talk about the femoral triple lumen or introcatheter, basically femoral central lines. I think these are much maligned, and I did a lot of these when I was a resident in training. This was pretty much our go-to access for people who we couldn't get peripheral IVs in or if they needed central access or multiple ports for whatever reason. And there's a number of advantages with femoral lines. The landmarks are simple because we weren't doing these all ultrasound guided back then. It's away from the head and the chest where everybody else in the resuscitation is. It's easily compressible if you happen to hit the artery. 
And unless you're doing it wrong, there's really no risk of pneumothorax. But as ultrasound became more adopted for line placement, we moved away from the femoral site to the internal jugular site. We skipped right over the subclavian. It was hard to do that with ultrasound. We'll come back to that in a moment. But we were doing mostly ultrasound-guided IJs. And the knock on the femoral line, the reason we were going to IJ instead, was because the IJ was supposed to be cleaner. Yes, we knew there was a risk for pneumothorax, but we figured it was pretty small. We were doing these with ultrasound. There really wasn't much downside, and they were going to be cleaner lines than the femoral line. The groin is so dirty, let's move away from that location. But we actually have some literature to tell us that this discussion isn't quite as simple as we made it out to be. There's some literature to guide us here. In 2012, Merrick and his colleagues published a systematic review and meta-analysis, and they found no difference in catheter-related bloodstream infections between all three typical sites, subclavian, IJ, and femoral. The Parenti study in 2015, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, is kind of held up as the study. It was an RCT randomizing patients who needed a central line one-to-one-to-one to either femoral, IJ, or subclavian. They had a combo endpoint of catheter-related bloodstream infections or thrombosis. One of the things we didn't talk about before is that femoral lines do tend to have a little bit more thrombotic complications. What they found was that the femoral and IJ sites had more of those complications, either the thrombosis or the infections, than subclavian, but femoral and IJ were about the same. In fact, infection was slightly more common in the IJ group than in the femoral group. When we talk about pneumothoraces, the mechanical complications... Obviously, for the femoral site, no pneumothoraces. For the subclavian site, it was about a 1.5% pneumothorax rate. And for the IJ, it was a 0.5% rate. I think that's a little bit higher than most of us assume, but still not terribly high, less than you would see with subclavians. Based on that literature, especially the Parenti study, it would seem that subclavians are actually the best line, less thrombosis, less catheter-related bloodstream infections, and even better is ultrasound-guided subclavian, which for a long time I think we thought we couldn't do, but we're learning more and more that it can be done, just takes a little bit of extra training with ultrasound. Ultrasound-guided IJ, not as great as we all thought it was in terms of infection, the risk of pneumothorax is real here. Based on all of this, I'm doing femoral lines more often than I did in the last couple of years. And the place I really like them is after I've run my initial resuscitation, either with a peripheral IV or with an IO, and now I need more access for the medications I'm going to deliver, or I need a large bore catheter to deliver more blood. For a while, I think this is where we were going to that ultrasound-guided IJ, but it takes more time. The positioning, making sure the patient's comfortable, that they're not intubated. I can get that femoral lining quick. I don't worry about pneumothorax, especially if the patient already has some compromise of respiratory status. But I am doing this a little bit differently than I did in training. I've learned a lot of different lessons about how to do these lines better. I'm no longer using the landmark-based approach. All of these are being done with ultrasound. I'm going to externally rotate the hip to get increased separation between the artery and the vein. I want to go high in the groin, right around that inguinal ligament to make sure that I'm getting the common femoral vein and not a branch. If the patient is hypoperfused, if I'm using vasoactive medications, then I'm going to drop an arterial line right next to that femoral line. Another advantage of the femoral CVL is that I can put that arterial line right next door. And actually, the arterial line in the groin is better than a radial arterial line or a peripheral arterial line because it's a better reflection of the patient's central perfusion. I'm already draped and prepped for the procedure, so it really cuts down on the time to putting that A-line in. 
if I have the patient relatively stabilized and they're still in the emergency department waiting for an ICU bed, I might then deliver a nice, clean subclavian line with the best prep that I can get. So I'm really going to take my time and get that subclavian in, knowing that we want to give the ICU a nice, clean line. But if the patient gets a bed and they have a femoral line in, no problem. I let the ICU team know, hey, this was placed under suboptimal conditions during resuscitation. It probably should be changed out within the next 24 to 48 hours. That honesty about the cleanliness of the line is really important. No matter how good of a prep we do in the emergency department, we sometimes break sterile procedure. It's better to communicate that with the team that's going to be taking over instead of trying to hide it. And most of these femoral lines probably should be changed out within a couple of days, even if we're using the best sterile technique. All right, that's all I've got. Femoral lines are fantastic. They are much maligned, but actually have a similar infection rate to internal jugular CVLs that we place. We don't have to worry about that infection so much. Get a quick line in, park the A-line right next door if you need it. This is a great line to be very savvy at using. Well, there you have it. Femoral lines are back in vogue and for pretty good reasons. All right, so that's a wrap on scaphoid fracture assessment, the TTM2 trial, the HEADS ED pediatric mental health screening tool, what you need to know about Kratom, pelvic fracture tips, and femoral lines. Thanks for listening.